0: You're listening to the Sydney Opera House Artie podcast.
1: It is my actual job to imagine. That's crazy. Who pays someone to imagine? You know, as a kid, you're always told, stop daydreaming, pay attention. Nah, I'm
0: getting paid to imagine. This talk was recorded as a live-streamed conversation. This might be a picture book, but this is definitely talking about some very serious issues
1: million people worldwide have been forcibly displaced Um, and 33 million of those people are children. People are not disabled by their disability but by the barriers of society. Enjoy it, you know, tell the story you want to tell.
0: Up next, Zana Freylon. Hi, everyone. My name is Alison and I am a performer and educator at the Sydney Opera House. The Opera House today stands on the lands called Benelong Point, but the original custodians of the land, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, called it Chubigale. And I would like to pay my respects to their elders, past and present. Today, I am very excited to say that we're being joined by the exceptional Zana Frelon, and she is joining us from her writer's studio in Victoria, which is on the lands of the Wurundjeri people. Zana writes books for kids and young people, novels and picture books, and she was once told to try and shine a light in all of the dark places. Her books try to give voice to people who we might not usually hear in the world around us and to empower kids and young people. Not only that, but along the way, her writing has actually won quite a few awards as well. So I'm very excited to welcome Zana Frelon and to ask her lots of questions to unlock not only what her books are about, but the importance of imagination, of having ideas and writing stories. And I'm really looking forward to hearing what we find out. So a warm welcome, Zana Frelon. Hello.
1: Hello. I'm so excited to be here. Even though I'm not in the Sydney Opera House as originally planned, it is a delight to be Zooming in to everyone, and we're going to talk to you from my studio.
0: So this, Zana, just to be clear, this is the very studio that you write all your books in.
1: It is. And this studio, you can probably see it's pretty small. So if I reach out my hands, I'm touching the walls, and I decide I can do the same that way. Um, and it used to actually be my kid's cubby house um, <laughs> until I kicked him out and said, I need a studio space. So we've, we've converted it. My, my partner built it. Um, and it's, it's pretty amazing. It gets very cold in winter and very hot in summer. Um, but I'm surrounded by books. I'm surrounded by notebooks and things that give me ideas like, um, these are some of my friends that sit on the windowsill.
0: Oh, wow. That's great.
1: And That give me, feed me all my ideas.
0: Oh, that's Um, fantastic.
1: And the walls are made of corkboards. So when I have an idea, I scribble it down
0: and then I just stick it straight into the wall. That's it. So actually, you really don't need very much if you want to write. You've written a lot of books. Some are short and some are long. But actually, we don't need very much to get started writing, do we?
1: Absolutely. And before I had this luxury of my studio, <laughs> I had a cardboard box. And I'd put all the things that I felt gave me ideas that I needed to write in that box. I had my notebooks, pen and paper, my computer. Um, and my computer's a tiny little notebook, which I don't even know if they make anymore It's like a, a mini laptop. Yeah, um, cool. And yeah, and I would keep the box under my bed, pull it out when I was writing. Sometimes I'd use the kitchen table. Other times I'd empty out the cupboard and sit in the cupboard, which <laughs> it, was, it was great. Sometimes I'd build a cubby. A cubby is a great space to write one of the best um yeah so you don't need a fancy space you don't need fancy materials it's one of the best things about writing is that all you need is something to write on and something to write with
0: Great. so something to write on something to write with your imagination that's exactly. it. Well, that, that helps too yeah okay <laughs> well just to to get started we're gonna we're gonna find out a bit how about how you even became a writer so when did you first discover that writing was for you. That's what you really loved to do.
1: I always loved writing, um, and in fact, I found this. I don't know how I found this. This is a story I wrote when I would have been about maybe six. Um, I think it's been typed up on on like a typewriter or maybe a very oh, old wow. computer. Um, it's a chapter book. I'll have you know. Look, chapter three, a way out. Wow!
0: So for and all our kids'
1: this, this is a book you wrote when you were in kindy or you one. Yeah, I think I would have been year one. So I, I was in, um, I was in America when I wrote it. So um, I, that would have been until I was in grade two. So yeah, so about year one.
0: That's fantastic. And why do you like writing for kids and young people, specifically, and not so much for adults?
1: I think the thing, I mean, part of it is that Um, Before I was an author, I was working in schools as a teacher and an integration aide, and I've got kids of my own. So I really love being around young people anyway. Um, But the wonderful thing about kids and young people is they've got the biggest imaginations. I think young people have far bigger imaginations than adults do. um, And they've got their minds are very wide open to possibilities. So when a young person is imagining the future, the future they are imagining is very different to the future that adults are imagining. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. you know, I, I wish we adults could, could learn how to imagine from, from young people because I think that's where it's at. But young people are always looking for, um, for impossibility. They're always questioning things and it's a really exciting space to be writing into.
0: I couldn't agree with you more. I think lots of the answers that the adults need quite often come from the kids.
1: Absolutely. Now,
0: here's a very big question. Why do you think it's important for kids to read books and not just learn everything from videos? That is a big question. Um, And I'll first
1: of all start by saying that I really do love all art forms. So I learn heaps from watching videos, from watching uh, movies and YouTube, and in fact, some of the greatest author talks you can find are on YouTube. And I think one of the things that um, COVID has brought, which is really exciting, is we're suddenly able to access all those those talks, which otherwise oh, exactly. would have yeah. just been live. So um, there's a lot a lot that's good about watching other art forms and watching videos and movies and things as well. But I think the thing is that um, books provide a different experience. So because no one else imagines in the same way that you do. Um, So I could give someone a book and they would read it and we would both imagine it completely differently, even though the words are the same, even though there might be pictures in the book. The way we actually imagine that book is completely different to each other and that's really exciting. So with videos and movies, we're shown what someone else has already imagined and we take that in and we can think about it. But when reading, we're the ones doing the imagining. Um, and I think, you know, for me at least, when you read a book, it's you escape into a world that exists, and it really does exist when you're imagining it. It's, it's mm. when I read these these people, these characters, these places are, are very, very real. Um, and within those worlds, you can be anything you want. You can explore things that otherwise might be too difficult to explore. You can be someone that maybe you'd be too frightened to be or you wouldn't have the opportunity to be in real life, but at any time you can step back out and into your own real world, knowing that you're perfectly safe, um, but that you will be changed by it in some some small way. and, and for me, you know, I've, I've always been a big reader. And, and part of it is that um, you can see I'm wearing glasses now, but <laughs> no one knows that no one knew that I needed glasses until I was almost eight years old. And I'm very, very short sight. So I can't see anything that's further than sort of this far from my face. So um, in the very formative early years, the only thing I could really see was a book held very close to my face. And so I think that's part of the reason I love reading so much. But I think it's, you know, it's it's almost the closest thing that we have to real magic, apart from real magic.
0: Yeah, because it's all our imagination working hard to create these worlds, which are coming out of the words on the page.
1: Exactly, exactly. Yeah.
0: Now, this might be a hard question. Sometimes I ask this to writers and it's hard for them to answer. So what's your favourite book? That's an impossible question. (laughs)
1: Completely ridiculous. I have I have so many favourite books and it depends on the mood. It depends on a whole range of things, but I do have some firm favourites. What are, I'll start what are some
0: it. books that have been a big influence on you? Do you think?
1: Okay. Um, Winnie the Pooh. I love.
0: Winnie Absolutely
1: the Pooh. adore Winnie the Pooh. Pippi Longstocking is another one I love. Um, Folk and Fairy Tales. I don't know if you can see the big white book behind me that's, Um, and the one next to it they're they're folk and fairy tales and I'm I'm surrounded by books of folk tales from different countries I really really love them they've had a really big impact on my writing Um, and then if I had to pick one favourite book I think I would probably pick I came prepared (laughs) the naming of Tishkin Silk by Glenda Millard and It is one of the most beautiful books. Our dog is called Tishkin after the character Tishkin Silk in this book, who's not a dog in the book, by the way. Um, it's beautifully written, it's, it's everything. It's everything you want in a book. Um, and I've got, like I said, I've got lots of other favorites, but if I, had to pick, if I had to pick one book to, you know, last me forever, I think it
0: would be that. The naming of Tishkin Silk, okay. And our last question before we start to look at some of your actual books what's the best thing about being an author
1: oh, there are so many good things but I think the best thing is that it is my actual job to imagine it's that's crazy who pays someone to imagine you know as a kid you're always told to stop daydreaming pay attention no I'm getting paid to imagine so that's great! it's it's fantastic <laughs> and and it's like, it's like reading, I get to explore the world and explore ways of being the world and seeing the world in ways that I wouldn't otherwise experience them. And I can be any character I want. I guess it's a bit like acting, you know, you can step inside a character and really explore what it would be like to be them. Um, and the best moments of writing come. And I, it's, it's, this is definitely magic, so I don't know how it works, but I'll sometimes sit down and write something and then when I come back the next day and look at it, I can't remember what it is I've written. And so it's like I'm reading it for the first time. And it is crazy. And some of the best moments in my books have come from these really magical moments where it's just like, the only thing I am is the fingers typing. And there's something else that is writing those words. And when I read it the next day, it's, it's actually mind-blowing. So that kind of, that kind of magic wow. keeps me coming back.
0: Okay, well, let's take a, a quick look to begin with at the picture book called Wisp a story of hope and the main character of of Wisp is Idris and as you say in the very first line of this book Idris lived in a small small world so this might be a picture book but this is definitely talking about some very serious issues what is this small small world that Idris is living in?
1: So when I wrote WISP, um, I decided to set it inside a refugee camp um, or an immigration detention centre. And I wanted it to be um, able to be seen as as either one because uh, while Australia has immigration detention centres and, in fact, most countries in the world do, there are lots and lots of people living in refugee camps. So I think the figure for people living actually inside refugee camps uh, is at about 7 million people who are in these camps. And for those of you who don't know a refugee camp is a is a temporary facility um, that's built to provide immediate protection and assistance for for people who have been forced to flee their homes um, due to war or persecution or violence or or natural disasters Um, and they're not really set up as a permanent place to live so um, they're really just there to provide Basic needs, so basic shelter, very basic food, water, medical treatment, um, and they're really only set up during emergencies. But of course, um, in some countries where war has been going on for a very long time, and you know, across generations, in some in some instances, some people are spending their entire lives in camps, and there are generations of the same family who are who are living in these camps, so they've become this very permanent place. Okay. Um, Yeah, and I think it's the one of the reasons that I really wanted to focus on on having a a picture book set here is because across the world right now there are more forcibly displaced people than at any other time in in human history Um, and uh, I think that I think the numbers close to eighty-eight and a half million and a half million people worldwide have mm-hmm. been forcibly displaced um, and 33 million of those people are children. Um, so, you know, the people living in the refugee camps might be some of the luckier ones as well. Um, and to put that in some kind of perspective, there are 5 million children living in Australia. So um, 33 million children who have been forcibly displaced is a sort of a mind blowing number.
0: Well, wow. when we think about it like that, it certainly gives us some perspective on what's happening in, in places outside of, um, I'll speak for myself, my comfortable existence here in, in Sydney, Australia. Um, if it's okay with you, we'll have you read a small section from WISP now. Is that fine?
1: Absolutely. Great. Idris lived in a small, small world. A world where fences grew from the dirt and where shadows ruled. A world with no trees to give shade, no rivers to drink or seas to swim. A world full of people, but where everyone was alone. Until one day, a wisp flew in on the evening wind. Dust rose up in swarms around it, feet trampled into the dirt. Nobody noticed it. Nobody except Idris. Idris gently the wisp from the ground. He softlyed away the dust and dirt and footprints, and that was when he felt it—the smallest whisper of want. The wisp began to wriggle, flitting and fluttering. It bustled Idris past rows of tents, over the moonlit dirt, and along the fences' glare, until it stilled at the feet of a man, ancient and cracked. Is this yours? Idris asked, the man's eyes were long ago dulled, but he took the wisp in his hands. He held it to his ear, slowly the spark of a smile lit his lips. Once he whispered.
0: So wisp is a small magical ball of light that arrives at Idris or with Idris And it it leads him to other people that live around him in, in the small, small world that he's in at the moment. And it leads him to people who then can remember the world before they arrived in the small, small world. And we get to meet some of their memories, which is just beautiful. So why was it important for you to include the memories of these people through WISP?
1: Um, There were a number of reasons. Uh, I think first and foremost, when I was writing both The Bone Sparrow and Wisp, um, the reason I started to write both of them was because um, I was looking in the newspapers and hearing news reports, and I was hearing people talk about asylum seekers and refugees, and the talk was all about statistics and policies, and what had been forgotten and what had been lost was the idea that those numbers actually represent real people. So mm-hmm. when you talk about statistics, they are, they are 33 million real children. Um, and that's very easy to lose sight of that. So one of the things I that was really important to me was that I brought back, um, I brought those people, I brought their stories back to life so that, that we would remember that when we read about statistics and heard about policies and thought about those things, that we were thinking that these are impacting real people with real stories and real memories and real lives. Um, and so that was that was one of the reasons I had had that in there to to help bring those people to life in our imagination. Yeah. Um, but also because stories and memories are so powerful. You know, they they connect us to people and places who have come before and they connect us to people and places that that will come after us as well. Um and they can show us different ways of being in the world and different ways of seeing the world, um, which to me is what what stories and writing is all about. Um and for the people, for the characters in Wisp, when they were remembering those stories, they were remembering almost as though they were reliving that moment. And that was something I wanted to give these characters, even though they're just, you know, fictive elements in a book, um, that they, they become real to me when I'm writing them. So I wanted to be able to give them that moment of, of remembering and reliving those experiences and those moments of, of happiness and love that they had been so far removed from, that they had lost or forgotten by, by living in the camps or the detention centres for so long. Um, and I wanted them to be able to share, or the characters to be able to share those moments with Idris and for them to bring the rest of the, the people, the rest of the people in the camp together in that act of remembering as well.
0: So it's interesting that you say you wanted them you, to, to, the characters to share these memories with the character of Idris. Because Idris has grown up in this camp so he doesn't have memories as I understand it over time before because he's always been there. So Idris receives a different Wisp. So if he hasn't got the memories that the other characters have that they share with him, what does Wisp mean for Idris? For Idris the Wisp is a
1: promise and it's a um, promise of what I guess of all the different possibilities that could be, and that could exist for him in the future. Um, so it, it allows him to imagine a future which is different to the world he is living in now. And um, it's sort of asking him or, or providing a way for him to take all those people's memories and imagine all the memories that he will one day make for himself. Um, and I guess it's also a promise for us as well and, and for, the, kids and, and young people and adults reading that book now that, that we too can change the world and that we can make the world a different place yeah. and, and we can imagine a different future.
0: That's, it's really interesting and I, I hope that all of our listeners and everybody participating today um, takes away that word imagine because Idris has no reason I suppose to imagine anything different than what he knows but, but we can imagine if we let our imagination go wild. That brings me a little bit to to the images. The illustrations in WISP are, are so beautiful and they seem to match the story so perfectly. The artist's name is Graham Baker Smith. Did you particularly want to work with this artist or was it a happy accident or how did you work together to create this beautiful picture book?
1: So I had no idea who the illustrator would be when I submitted the manuscript to my publishers. Um, and they they thought of a few different people. We had a few different options um, and Graham was one of them. And I don't think anyone else could have illustrated the work as beautifully and which is, with as much sort of depth and, and understanding as Graham did. Um, I still have the pictures up on my wall that I printed out from, from very early on when he yeah. sent them through. He created such a beautiful atmosphere and it was a really difficult book, I think, to to illustrate because it was dark and it was set in a, a landscape that doesn't lend itself to being illustrated um, and illustrated beautifully. And the fact that he managed to do that is just, it's mind boggling. Um, yeah, and I've never met Graham. And at first we were kept <laughs> quite separate. Um, and then eventually after both of us kept nagging our, our publisher, they agreed to swap give us each other's emails and we've, (laughs) we've struck up the
0: most beautiful friendship and we, we speak to each other quite a lot and it's, it's delightful. Okay. That's, that's really, really nice to hear. It's interesting that the illustrator and the writer are kept separate for a long time. Why do you think your publishers are trying to keep you separate given that you're working on the same book? I think it's a way of
1: enabling uh, the illustrator to bring their own imagination into the project. So, um, when, I, when I'm when i writing a book, especially a picture book, I have certain ideas for what the image will look like in my head. And if they were to influence the illustrator, um, you wouldn't get nearly as wonderful a product as, as you get when you've got two creative minds bubbling away on their own. Um, and then at the point when they come together, that's where you get almost another whole level of of imaginative bubbling going on, um, because then we start working off each other and bouncing ideas back and forth as well. Um, So I might change some words and he might change some illustrations and um, it goes to a whole nother level as well. But I think it is really important to have each of us bring our own ideas to the project first um, before we start collaborating together on it.
0: Yeah. Okay. It's really interesting. And why did you want to create a picture book? about a child in a refugee camp or an immigration detention centre?
1: For the same reason uh, that I was writing The Bone Sparrow. Um, These are voices that have been deliberately silenced. They are, um, especially in Australia, where our immigration detention centres are mostly offshore. Um, You know, we're supposed to forget about these people. We're supposed to forget they exist. Um, it's very easy for us to continue on with our lives and not think about people in detention centres and refugee camps. Um, and I wanted to, um, to create something that would enable and provoke people into thinking about that, that more. And I think, you know, young people and kids, they know what's going on. They know these things are happening in the world. Um, and I think far too often adults um, underestimate what, what kids are capable of thinking about and what kids are capable of of discussing and understanding. Um, But the more of the world that that young people understand, the more possibilities we have to to
0: change that world. Mm -hmm. And what do you think, from your point of view as the writer, is the most important message in uh, WISP?
1: Um, I think it's the message, the idea that someday, you know, it's it's the same thing that that Idris is getting in in his promise that someday, We will live in a world where children and where where people of all ages aren't imprisoned for trying to find safety or trying to find a home um, or trying to escape war or violence or famine, Um, that we are are welcoming and encouraging and embrace everyone um, to live happily and in safety.
0: You have another picture book which I'm really excited to talk about today because it's just released. It's a week a week old for all of us. For you, it's it's probably seven a teenager <laughs> seven years old. But for, but for all of us readers, uh, your your newest picture book called The Curiosities is is just out in the shops now. And uh, the Curiosities is again a book which is about people that we may be well, in this case, the main character Miro, so a person that we, we maybe don't get to see the world through Miro's perspective or Miro's point of view very often just just like in the case of Idris in Wisp. The, the Curiosities are these in my interpretation mysterious white figures, and they come to visit Miro. Can you tell us what do these curiosities represent? So
1: the curiosities will represent different things for different people. And um, for me, that's one of the wonderful things about books, is that no book means the same thing for everyone. Um, And I love it when, you know, when I'm asked to tell people what a book, what a book means or, or, um, what I hope people get get from it because from from my perspective when I write the book and once it's out there in the world it becomes something completely different it's no longer mine it belongs to the reader um, so I don't think that an author or an illustrator or a teacher or a publisher anyone can say what a book means to you it's it's the real meaning sits with the reader um, and so with the curiosities, They'll mean different things, different people. But for some people, the curiosities might represent feelings um, or emotion, or how they think or feel um, differently, or feel frightened about something. Um, they might represent disability uh, or neurodiversity, or they might just represent these strange little magical creatures <laughs> that decide to come and nest on a character. And you know, whatever interpretation people bring to it is correct. That's the correct interpretation.
0: Susanna, you just mentioned the words neurodiversity and disability. And in the notes of the book, The Curiosities, you talk about uh, one of your own children who is neurodiverse and has a disability. So what do these words mean?
1: So uh, neurodiversity is a phrase or a term that's used to acknowledge um that brain differences are just normal variations of the human brain. So it's not something that is wrong with the brain or that needs fixing or curing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a, a normal variation. And it acknowledges that people with neurodiversities can experience and interact and interpret the world in unique and varied and wonderful ways. Um, and I guess inherent in that is that the idea that difference and diversity is, is something we should be celebrating and embracing mm-hmm. um, so for me my child has Tourette syndrome um as well as anxiety disorder and compuls- uh, obsessive compulsive disorder um and these are just the way that her, her brain and her body work um and that doesn't mean that there aren't challenges because there are um but it's not a deficit it's not something wrong um it's not something that she would ever want cured or fixed it's just part of, of who she is okay. um, and I think it's, it's important and it's you know uh, for her her unique way of, of seeing the world has meant um, it's allowed us to see something different in the world as well and think about things in ways that we, we wouldn't have before.
0: And in the curiosities Miro experiences life with the curiosities in a really full and rich engaging way and As you were talking about about your own child, he probably can see things in a way that maybe other characters in the story don't necessarily or or maybe in a way that me or another reader wouldn't necessarily. And sometimes in the curiosities, they become too strong for him or maybe not too strong, but they overwhelm Miro a little bit. In your experience, is this something that happens with um, disabilities and... Um, neurodiverse people in real life?
1: Yeah so um, I can first of all I can I don't have a disability and I don't have Tourette syndrome um, or neurodiversities and so all I can really do is um, comment on what we've experienced as a family and I certainly can't speak for or to other people's experience Mm. Um, but from our experience this is this is something that happens quite quite a lot and when uh, my child was young and when she was first diagnosed, she would actually draw, um, and this is where the idea for the Curiosities came from, she would draw her ticks as um, separate from her body and as these strange little creatures that could often be really sweet and cute and wonderful, but at other times were drawn as huge, overbearing, overwhelming creatures that could be very frightening. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I was writing the Curiosities, I was trying to um, express that that way of her seeing the world and of, of viewing her disability um as well as expressing in some way the way I could see the world was responding to her. So when we would be out and about and she would tick um and uh sometimes her ticks, so they're both vocal and physical ticks, um, and sometimes her ticks would be really loud. Or really big, yeah. um, and and of course, if someone's standing next to you and they suddenly shout out something that's you know that's that's not normal to shout out, then of course you look. Um, but what was happening was people would either look and stare and sort of look horrified and aghast, or you know laugh, um, or other people would look, realize that she had a disability, and turn away and and just refuse to look at her, kind of you know walk past yeah. with their head to the side. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: Whereas for us, you know, her ticking is like someone having the hiccups, you know, it's, it's, you don't even notice it. Um, so that was definitely something that we saw being reflected in the world around her. It.
0: Okay, it's, it's really interesting. And um, you've spoken about something called the social model of disability. Can you explain what the social model of disability is and why that's important?
1: Yeah, so I first, or we first came across the social model of disability um, again when my child was first diagnosed. And there's a wonderful woman from the UK called Jess Tom, and she's got an alter ego called Tourette's Hero, and <laughs> yeah. she just happened to come out to Australia to do this show. And she does um, a relaxed theatre production, which means that people can walk around if they need to walk around. They can call out. They can tick. It's, it's, you know, you just be yourself. Um, and there's, there's no issues there at all because, of course, one of the problems um, with people with, uh, who have a disability or neurodiversities is that it's really difficult to get to the theatre or the ballet or movies even because your body is making you make these movements or have these noises which other people find distracting or offensive or whatever. Yeah. Um, so Jess Tom came out and she met with Manny, uh, my child, beforehand um and she spoke to us about the social model of disability and it's a way um of viewing the world that was developed by people with disability and it says that people are not disabled by their disability but by the barriers in society so that might be environmental or physical or attitudinal or communicational or social barriers in society um and that prevents people with disability participating on an equal basis um and so it 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 looks at changing society in order to accommodate people with disability rather than seeking change of people with disability to accommodate society. Mm. Um, mm. And it helps, I guess it helps recognise that barriers make life harder for people with disability. And so removing those barriers creates equality and offers people with disability um, more independence and choice and control.
0: Yeah, that's, that's so interesting, isn't it? Because well, as, as you said earlier, um, if we if we take your child as an example, who has Tourette's, there's nothing there's nothing wrong with Tourette's. It's just a, a part of the makeup of this particular human. So, exactly. yeah, nothing, nothing to be fixed. And exactly,
1: exactly. And, you know, really simple things is like looking at, you know, your, your school playground and saying, is this accessible for someone who uses a wheelchair? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and most school playgrounds won't be. So it then looks to say, well, how can we make the playground more accessible rather than saying, um, well, bad luck, someone who uses a wheelchair can't use it.
0: Let's have a think about the, the illustrations in the curiosities. So um, you are an Australian writer. Now, if I have a look at the images of the, Curio- the Curiosities, it doesn't look like Australia. Uh, the artist's name is Phil Lesney and he has a Filipino heritage. So has he drawn on his Filipino heritage to create the world that the Curiosities story exists in?
1: He has. And he, he created using um, pre-colonial Philippines as well. So it's, uh, he really enjoyed connecting with that, that part of his culture um, going back to the, the folklores from his family and using those. Um, the curiosities are all based on Aswang, which he talks about a bit in the back of the book, which are uh, folklore characters in, in Filipino heritage. Um, and it's added such an incredible layer to the story. Yeah, and it's, it's, yeah. it's amazing because in my head, you know, when I was writing it, the illustrations looked nothing like this. So I, I would never have imagined this. And that's, again, the beauty of collaborating with, with an illustrator is that he's brought a whole other world and, and combined it. So it's really created something which um, I wouldn't ever have thought possible.
0: Okay. It's, they're, I mean, they're remarkable illustrations. It really does bring a whole new world into, well, it certainly did when I read it, brought a whole new world of imagination that I couldn't have done without those pictures. You know? uh, absolutely. It's really great. But you don't only write picture books, you also write novels for young people, and I've got two of those here. So we're going to take a quick look at The Bone Sparrow and we also have The Lost Soul Atlas. So these are obviously much larger books in terms of the number of words. Um, What's the difference for you between writing a picture book and writing a novel?
1: Novels take a lot longer to write.
0: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) okay.
1: (laughs) They take a lot longer. They allow me to um, really get inside the head of the character and really bring that character to life. Um, before I start writing a novel, I I always have to start with the character. Otherwise, I sort of can't get any words out. So okay, um, yeah, and I start I start thinking about who the character is, where they might live, um, what what they would see in their environment, um, things that things that would make them tick, what they would struggle I as in, mean, you know, things that would, that was the wrong word to use, um, <laughs> things, <that> would, <laughs> things things that would um, be challenging for them, things that would, that would appeal to them. And I kind of, I try to get to know them as much as, as much as possible. Um, and that's a really wonderful part of creating a novel is that it really is creating, you know, step-by-step step, an entire world inside my head. Um, the, joy the great joy of picture book writing is that I'm able to collaborate um with an illustrator and also that I I have the time to really polish and focus on every little word and I focus a lot on the the rhythm of the words the way they feel in my mouth the the feel of the the feel of the words in your tongue which sounds like a silly thing but there are some words that just have the best feel in your mouth (laughs) um and I do do that a little bit with with novels as well but obviously I don't have. I don't have the time to, to really polish it as each single word as much. So it's more the overall experience. Um, yeah. And, and with what I really love about creating a novel is that when I create that, that character, I force myself to imagine them almost like an imaginary friend. So they come with me down the street. Um, I've got one sitting at the back of my studio now from the book I'm writing at the moment. They're just hanging out there. I'm trying to put them out of my head so I can concentrate on this. They come with me to school visits. You know, it's, it's they're there with me as much as I can. And it's, at first, it's kind of hard to force yourself to imagine that way, but it brings them to life for me. And so that's, that's one of the things I love doing.
0: The characters are like the curiosities. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so in The Bone Sparrow, our, our main character is, is Subi. And like Wisp, Subi is growing up in a, a refugee camp or a detention center. And in the Lost Soul Atlas, we have our main character is, is Twig and Twig's father has gone missing and, and Twig is surrounded by crime and things which are probably not great for a young person. Well, not probably, not great for a young person growing up. So Subi and Twig are quite different in their situation, but what do they have in common, do you think, as characters? I
1: think they're both alone In their world even though you know they're they're not they're not physically alone that they feel alone Um, and they both need to find their people Um, and both stories I think are about found family and the power of friendship Um, yeah I think both Twig and Subi are fiercely loyal Um, and they both have a courage that they didn't think they had and a lot of the stories about them having to find that courage and that strength in order to protect the people that the most important to them. Um, they both have hope, which is it's, it's an element in all my stories that there has to be hope. Um, and I think for, for both Twig and Subi, they're in worlds in which um, those in impor- power are corrupt and oppressive and unjust. And I think they both discover that all that people, no matter how small or how politically unimportant, um, have power and that that everyone can make a difference.
0: So in both The Bone Sparrow with Subi and in The Lost Soul Atlas with Twig, you managed to describe the worlds that they live in in a really detailed, really imaginative way. And certainly for me as a reader, I got quite carried away. I could really see the worlds that they were living in. Now, I'm going to assume that you've never been to these places, and I don't know that, you might correct me, but if I assume that you've never been to these places, these are imaginative creations. You've taken some knowledge in your imagination and you've put it together and created the spaces. How how do you do that? How do you create these worlds which, which might exist in one way, but they don't really exist in the sense that they come from your imagination? So what's the process?
1: So I always start with research and that's one of the ways I get to know my character as well. It's through a lot of research. Um, so for example, I have folders like this that are full of um, newspaper articles and wow. yeah. And notebooks and uh, printed off articles. Um, and for the bone sparrow, I had, I don't know how many of those folders, a lot, a lot. Wow. Wow, it's about wow. sort of three months of, of research before I, put any words on paper Um, but certainly for the Bonesbury the thing that was the most enlightening for me and that that gave me the most information was looking at um, pictures drawn by uh, asylum seeker and refugee children living in detention centres and camps so Mm -hmm. I I stumbled upon these drawings and that was what let me see the world from inside these kids eyes um, and really that's what really brought them to life. Um, I had lots of photos, aerial photos. For a while in Australia, it was illegal to have any information about the offshore detention centres. Um, I did manage to find quite a lot still, though, which was, which was very helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, and then with the Lost Soul Atlas, I had an idea of the kind of world I wanted Twig to be living in. Um, the Lost Soul Atlas is set uh, in the afterlife and in the real world. Um, and so I knew what I kind of wanted the real world to look like. And then I had to kind of grapple with the afterlife. Um, and I've, I've never done this before, but I created a scrapbook um, that I just started putting down images of what I thought his world might look like.
0: Could I say that the things you do to really spark your imagination are like incredibly fun? like figures like all the things you just really want to do are the things that are going to help you write
1: exactly exactly and I think that's one of the things that people forget they kind of think that authors have to be sitting down writing all the time but often the best ideas happen when I'm away from my computer screen so I go for walks a lot to just let myself think um doodling I'm I cannot draw to save my life but but doodling really helps there's something about the pen moving on the paper. Um, if ever I'm stuck, I draw a spiral and just keep going. And before I fill the page, I've always had an idea. Um, with the Lost Soul Atlas, there was a point where I was really, really stuck. And it was one of those points where I thought I either have to figure this out or throw the whole project away. And I didn't want yeah. to do that because I, I put a lot of myself in it. And I sat down and I started off with these four guys who were like the gods wow. of the afterlife. And I started – making maps and drawing and jotting down notes and after I don't know maybe two hours of just sitting there linking it all together I had it all sorted and you know and that was I could then go off and do it so yeah it's um uh, the hard work it's not hard even because it's so much fun but the thinking happens not necessarily when you're sitting down writing
0: that's it's so interesting um I'm just gonna ask you one quick question about a a character in the Bone Sparrow, because I think it really brings us to the themes and is evidence of your research. And then we'll just have a few quick questions about about process and before we wrap up. So in the Bone Sparrow, we have some questions. uh, We have some characters called the Jackets and um, they think that another character called Nazir is a risk or as they say, he has, uh, he has an adverse risk assessment. Now they're talking about a human being, the character of N- N- um, Nazia. What, what what are they talking about? Like how did you invent this character of the jackets, which is a really interesting way to describe them. And what are they talking about when they call Nazia um, an adverse risk assessment?
1: So the jackets were um, my character Snooby's way of, of talking about the guards and When I first started writing, you know, I was trying to think of what that would look like from a kid. So Subi has been born inside this immigration detention center and he's never known the outside world. So everything he knows is informed from his experience of of living there. Um, And so the jackets are the guards and most of them are are pretty nasty people or at least not particularly pleasant. They certainly don't don't have a lot of care for the people there. Uh, There is one guard, Harvey, who is almost like a father figure to Subi Um, and tries his best to make life as pleasant as possible for people living in the detention centre. And Nazir is one of Subi's friends and he is uh, an old man and he's one of the people that's been there for the longest time. Um, And Nazir was based very much on uh, the real-life stories of of people who I had read about and come across in my research. Mm -hmm. Um, There was one particular man who was the first asylum seeker to be put in a detention centre in Australia and lived on his own for, I think it ended up being over a year on his own. So basically solitary confinement in one of these places. Um, so that's that's who I had based Nazir on. Um, but the adverse risk assessment came directly from an article published uh, in The Age that I'd read early on uh, about a woman who was a Tamil refugee And she had come to Australia, she'd been given refugee status, so that meant that they had decided that she was a refugee, that she couldn't go back to her country of origin because she would be killed. Um, And at the time she was living in community detention, so she still had to check in with the immigration department regularly, but she was living in the community with her two children. Um, And then at one of these uh, regular meetings. She brought her children along and they said, we are putting you back in an immigration detention centre and uh, you will be there indefinitely. Now that's now our policy, that standard policy now, but at the time it wasn't at the time you could only be in a detention centre for a short amount of time. Um, and she said, what, what do you mean? What, why are you doing this? And they said, well, ACO has given you an adverse risk assessment and we think that you are going to be a danger to the community. And she said, well, what, am I, what do you think I'm, I'm going to do or what do you think I've done? And they said, I'm sorry, that's confidential. And she said, well, can I see the risk assessment? And they said, no, that's, that's confidential. And you know, she kept asking these questions about what they thought she had done, what evidence they had, and they, they just kept saying it was confidential. And so they put her and her children back in detention. Um, and the last sentence of the article was that two days after going back into the detention centre, she discovered she was pregnant with her third child. Um, and that was actually where the character for Subi came from because um, the first time I wrote The Bone Sparrow it had been from the perspective of his older sister Queenie and she was quite angry and it was quite a dark book Um, and I knew I needed a character that had more hope and so uh, Subi was born when I read that and realised that if there was a child that was the only world he knew then he would have hope and he wouldn't see it as a necessarily bad place because it's the only thing he knew. Um, So I really wanted to get get her story in there Um, and uh, incidentally uh, this woman and her her children were kept in detention centre in a indefinite detention uh, for four and a half years before she was released and told that it had been a mistake.
0: Wow, that's incredible story. It's really interesting to hear how all of this research, the things you read, drawn, written, collected, made, all come together in a strange magical way to have the storylines and the characters there on the page they all kind of alchemy happens okay two questions about process to wrap up yeah. um rapid fire questions to end okay, okay. um we know that Being a writer means you can imagine worlds, you can imagine characters, you can let your imagination run wild, you can create these things, you can collaborate with people sometimes. It's amazing. It's not easy, though. So what are some of the challenging parts of being a writer?
1: The challenging parts of being a writer, I think, are um, not when you don't have people to collaborate with. So I've got all this stuff in my head and sometimes it's really hard to get it out on the page. Um, And in fact, I've just written a book where I've collaborated with another author Um, and that was an amazing process because suddenly we both had the same world in our head and we both had ideas coming and, it didn't feel like work at all. We were just firing ideas off each other. It was like playing a big game and then suddenly a book appeared. Um, So I think the hardest part is not having people to throw ideas around with who know the book and know the researchers as much as you do.
0: And for all of our listeners, we've got students and teachers and big kids and little kids and lots of people listening. What are some top tips if you have a story idea to get that from in here to on the page top tips for writing your story the top tips are
1: (laughs) I've got so many where do I start um first of all read a lot and and give time for reading so one of the things I mean I'm always reading and I've always loved reading but when I'm really busy I tend that's the first thing that tends to go um and I've made a really big effort to say actually this is part of my work part of my job is to read and be surrounded by words so make time for reading and and Drink it all up um write all the time obviously um but also imagine that no one is ever going to read what you write and when I wrote uh the lost soul atlas I had to try really hard to do that um and so you I actually convinced myself that no one would ever read it and I could just throw everything I loved onto the page and everything that I wanted to read because when you're imagining who's going to read it whether it's your your sister or your teacher or a friend you have all their expectations, what you think of their expectations, and it weighs you down. Um, so get those voices out of your head, just write what you wanna write. I know someone who, um, a young person asked me for advice and I, I told them to do that and they came back and they said how they wrote a story and then they wrote the next story on top of it and the next story on top of it so that no one ever would read it. And they said they were having the most fun and developing the most creative skills. <laughs> So yeah, write as though no one's ever going to read it and, and enjoy it, you know, tell the story that you want to tell.
0: Okay. Write as though no one else is reading it. Tell the story you want to tell. Don't judge, just get something on the page because guess what? You're going to have to rewrite it a hundred times anyway, so don't worry about it. Uh, and um, do as much creative fun stuff as you possibly can, including reading and writing. Is that a good summary? That's, that's, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. That brings us to the end of our interview. It has been a pleasure to talk with um, Zana Frelon about her books, her picture books, her novels, really beautiful stories, some beautiful illustrations. So huge thank you to Zana. For everybody listening in today on this interview, um, don't forget to jump on the Sydney Opera House digital education website. We have loads of um, interactive workshops. We have other author talks and all kinds of things going on all the time so don't be afraid to get in touch if you've got questions thank you again to zana and we hope to see you back at the sydney opera house very soon bye everyone thanks everyone to make sure you don't miss out subscribe to arti wherever you get your podcasts from